Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I know some of you were around last week, some of you may not have been. We started a new little preaching series, just a a short four-week series on a book in the middle of your Bibles called The Song of Solomon or The Song of Songs. So maybe if you've been flicking through, looking for something to read, you might have come across it before and read a little bit and thought, oh, what's this book? I don't really get what's going on here because unlike most of the Bible, when you read The Song of Songs, you find a book full of romantic poetry. And uh, I don't know if you read a lot of romantic poetry. I, uh, I don't tend to, to read it in like, main life. So uh, when I come across it, it's sometimes hard to know what to do with it. But throughout the history of Christians and before that Jewish interpreters of the Bible, they'd read these poems and they'd see the poems as pointing to something bigger than just a romance between a man and a woman who are speaking to each other. But they'd see it as communicating something about the love between God and his people. And so we're diving into it and we're trying to see uh, what it says, how it helps us in our relationship with God. And one of the people who writes about the song is, uh, is a guy called Julian Hardiman. And he summarises the basic idea. And he says this, Jesus loves me with the passion of a man for a woman. And the Song of Songs illustrates this in extraordinary colours, scents and tastes. A music of words to set our souls on fire in response. So this is calling for a response from us. Calling for us to express our love, our our desire, our longings for Jesus. And last week we, we started it and we looked at her desire for him. She starts the song by expressing how much she wants to be close to him. And we thought about how this can speak into that spark in us for for desire for closeness with God. Well, what we're going to see today is how this bride, how this beloved feels about herself or what she has to say about that. And then we'll see how he feels about her and what he has to say in response to the way she views herself. So our title for this morning is... You are beautiful, my love. Because they're the words that he says to her in the song. But she doesn't get it straight away. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you're talking to someone, you're trying to help them see something about themselves. And sometimes it's difficult for people to take it in, to believe these words spoken. She finds it hard to hear his view of her, that she's altogether beautiful. That's not an uncommon thing at all. In our day, it's absolutely widespread for people to have a negative view of themselves. On New Year's Day, there's an article in The Guardian by Amelia Hill. And she said, three out of four children as young as 12 dislike their bodies and are embarrassed by the way they look. Increasing to eight in 10 young people aged 18 to 21. And nearly half of all children and young people aged from 12 to 21 who were questioned have said they've become withdrawn or started exercising excessively or stopped socialising completely or self-harmed because they're regularly bullied or trolled online about their physical appearance. 
That's heartbreaking, isn't it? That's uh, a, a staggering set of statistics that at the same time don't surprise us if we've talked to people, engaged with the world, seen how people see themselves. It brought to mind to me a study in 2019 done by John Rankin Wendell called Selfie Harm. Uh, and he invited a bunch of young people and teenagers and said, we're going to take a photo of you and then you get access to all the editing software and you need to make the photo social media ready. And I think we've got uh, some examples of what they did. These are the uh, photographs, the originals and the, the kind of post-edit version, how these people changed their appearance. Pretty much everybody uh, tweaked. In fact, nobody left it unchanged. Most of the time, people were making their eyes bigger, their noses smaller, their skin brighter, trying to create a different image of themselves because they weren't happy with how they look. And to be honest, I remember myself at that age, and if I was part of that experiment, I would have done exactly the same thing. I suspect many of us would have. Well, this bride in the song, she has her own views uh, on herself. So if we pick up Song of Songs in chapter 1, verse 5, if you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn there with me. And we'll, we'll just see what she has to say about herself. Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 5. I am black and beautiful. Now, that's not a racial thing. She was like ethnically Arabian. That's not what she's trying to say there. Uh, she's saying something else which will become clear as we read. I'm black and beautiful, O daughters of Jerusalem. Like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. She says she's beautiful. She knows she has a natural beauty. But a couple of times in these verses, she also points out that she's dark. That's her insecurity about her appearance. Now, let me just explain what's going on here. Um, think about this week that we've just had, right? The sun has been scorching for most of the week. Can we just have a show of hands? Who likes that? Who likes it when it's really hot? Some of us do. Who hates it? Who, who's not a fan of the sun at all, right? There's a mix of feelings in the room. I'm on team absolutely love the sun. So this last week, um, confession time, every single day I found an excuse to be outside. So uh, my work has a whole variety of things, but some of them don't need tech, don't need computers, there's study, reading, note-taking, all sorts of stuff. Well, that can happen outside. And in my free time, just kind of lying out there in the park, just taking in uh, this beautiful weather. I'm absolutely all over that whenever I get the chance to do it. Now, some of you know, some might not know, my, my wife, Emma, she was born in London, but she spent most of her years growing up in southern India. Uh, and it's a very different kind of vibe in southern India to what it is in the UK. So for us, we get a week of sun and it's like, this is incredible. We've got one week a year. Let's all make the most of it. And so you approach the sun as a rare treat. Now, for Emma, who grew up in a place where the sun was shining most of the time, she sees it quite differently. And she'll say, Tom, you're absolutely mad. Like, why are you going out in the sun? You know, the, the sun is something uh, to stay inside from, to find the shade. You don't just go and observe. And there's a proverb that she loves to quote at me. And uh, you've probably heard, like, only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm Mr. Englishman. Emma uh, is kind of your classic kind of Indian climate 
person. So we have a very different attitude to the sun. In fact, we've even had moments on holiday when we've been looking for a space to relax, we've gone to a beach, we've had to find the exact line where the shade ends so we can have two chairs next to each other and I can be in the sun and Emma can be in the shade. It's a different kind of attitude to the sun. The Song of Songs was written in Israel. Israel was a climate much more similar to southern India than it was to the UK. It was a hot country. It was a place where the sun was shining all the time. And the way of life there was you only go out in the sun if you have to. You don't do it just because, well, it's sunny. I'm going to sunbathe. I'm going to enjoy it. You do it if you've got no choice, if you've got an errand to run, if you've got to be in a certain place. And what that meant practically is those people who were richer, those people who had more status, They didn't really have to go out in the sun because they could send other people to do the errands, other people to do the work. They could enjoy the shade, whereas people who were a bit poorer, people who didn't have the same status, often had to go out in the sun to work or to uh, do the ordinary things of life. And that meant that if you got yourself a suntan, then that was a marker that you were low status. That was a marker that you didn't have loads of options and choices in life. It was something, perhaps, that people looked down on a bit. And uh, for, for this lady here, she says that her brothers made her the keeper of the vineyards. So uh, their family, obviously, um, they had to work themselves outside in the sun. She was given this job, so she was having to spend all this time labouring outside in the heat. As a result, she picks up the suntan, and it's obvious that she doesn't have the privilege of, uh, of a princess or a, a person uh, of wealth, but uh, she was from an ordinary working family, and she feels very insecure about this. And then she adds this line, my own vineyard I've not kept. So she's speaking about beauty treatments. There might be some of her friends who had uh, the opportunity and the time and the money to invest in uh, skincare regimes and hair treatments and all sorts of things to, uh, to, try and make her, to, to try and make them look as they'd want to look. She said, well, I haven't really had the opportunity to do that. I've been working hard all day long. I've been cracking on with the normal things. I don't look like they look. And so she feels insecure. The bride sees herself as tarnished when she's coming to this lover, when she's speaking to this one whose love she so desires, and yet there's something about her that's like, but, but can I really access this? Can I get this? Will you see me in a way that accepts me? Because there's all these flaws. I'm so tarnished. Perhaps you resonate with that. Now remember, the Song of Songs is a spiritual book, so the lessons that we're trying to draw from it are spiritual lessons about our relationship with God. But maybe you hear echoes of her words, just in your spirit and your soul, as you think about coming to God. When, when you think about drawing near to Jesus, maybe you've got this sense of, do not gaze upon me because I am, and then complete the sentence with whatever words you might want to say. Maybe what comes to mind is particular mistakes you've made in the past. Like You know, uh, in theory, we're all sinners. You've heard that. But when it comes to yourself, you're like, ah, but for me, there's, there's a big one. For me, there's, there's this thing. And because of this thing, he couldn't possibly accept me. He couldn't possibly love me in this way the song talks about. 
Or maybe it's not the, the kind of big mistake of the past. Maybe it's the ongoing struggles. Maybe you feel, you know, I've been a Christian for a while and I've still not got myself sorted out. There's still these things lingering. There are still these challenges and patterns in my life. And there's a real shame that comes with that. And I recently, I just had a sense of a, a, a new insight into my own heart and just seeing some of my motivations and what was driving me behind like, a whole bunch of stuff that I was doing. I was like, oh my goodness, like, uh, this is just like a conviction moment, that this, this stuff in here. Like, how could he possibly love someone like me? Maybe it's not the stuff you're doing. Maybe uh, it's other things in your life that are making you feel like he couldn't love me. Maybe it's stuff that's happened to you that's made you feel blemished or ruined or unwantable. Maybe it's the general chaos of life, that life just feels messy. It's like you never have your stuff together. It's like my, my life is just spiralling out of control. Like how could anyone gaze upon me? Maybe it's rejection you've experienced from other people. Maybe you feel like you've been shoved to the sidelines. Or maybe you even identify with those teenagers in the article I quoted at the start. You don't like the way you look, or you don't like the way you sound, or you don't like the circumstances in which you've landed in life, and so you're presenting something to the world that even in your own mind, it's like, but how could anyone love this? And it affects how you think others might see you. It affects how you think God might see you. Perhaps it's none of that. Perhaps you just feel too ordinary. You're like, you, you know what? There's just nothing special about me. Why would God look at me? And that's certainly true of the, the beloved here. If you turn to chapter 2, verse 1, and see what she says. She says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Now, we read that and we think, oh, that's nice. That's a really positive thing to say about yourself. And, and those flowers do have a beauty among them. But the point she's making isn't that they're beautiful. She's picking flowers that were really common. She's picking the kind of flowers that were everywhere. So the valley was full of lilies. And so what she's trying to say here is, yeah, there might be some kind of beauty, but it's just an ordinary ten a penny beauty. It's like walking out uh, into the Peak District and like uh, picking a daisy from uh, the field and be like, yeah, it's kind of like this. This is the kind of beauty that I might have. She's saying, I'm nothing special. I'm not worthy of your attention. Maybe you'd say, I'm not worthy of God's attention. Maybe there are others who are doing better than me who God would look upon. Maybe you think of certain friends who, when it comes to their relationship with God, they always just see one step ahead. They're always smashing it. They're always on track with their quiet time. They're always piping up with that on-point prophetic word. And you look at them and think, yeah, God must love them. He must be happy with them. Maybe you think of certain leaders who you've um, been around now or in the past and think, yeah, those people, they get God's attention, not me. Maybe you think of Christian influencers that you've encountered online. Now, that's a whole other can of worms that we're not opening today, but you see people online and think, well, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe it's those people who God would love. But hear what he says in response in verse 2. She says, I'm a lily of the valleys. And he says, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among maidens. That's his way of saying, you think you're ordinary, but to me, you stand out. You stand out from the crowd. If you're a lily, then everyone else is like a bramble. There's something so captivating. To me, you make all the others pale into insignificance. 
I don't know if you've ever had the experience of seeing a group photo, like loads of people on it, uh, and you fancy someone, right? Whose eyes do you immediately go to? Like, you're looking for them, aren't you? Like, you're just drawn to them on the photo because everyone else is like the brambles, but that one is the lily that stands out. And there's something of God, so you're like the lily who stands out to me. And then she says, well, there's an apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among young men. She says, you stand out to me as well. So how does he really feel about her? Yeah, he's saying she stands out, but we're going to uh, dive into now what some of, some of what he says. And we're in chapter four, and this is the wedding day. So now they're getting married. He's doing a little speech. He's expressing his heart for her. And um, Jason Roach from London City Mission makes this reflection. I think he's dead right. A groom in his wedding speech does not pre pretend that his wife is just the same as every other woman. That would be ludicrous. Instead, he deliberately picks out those things that bring him joy, and he celebrates them. And that's what uh, this groom here in the Song of Songs does. And he does it by what we call a wasp, which is an ancient Arabic form of poetry that basically goes through the body bit by bit, uh, expressing his praise for it. Now, it does so using metaphor. It's not meant to be a physical description, otherwise we end up with an absolute Picasso uh, of an individual. <laughs> but I, I want you, as we read it, just to try and get the flavour of how he feels about her. So, uh, chapter 4, and we'll read the first 10 verses. So this is him speaking to her. How beautiful you are, my love. How very beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats moving down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them is bereaved. Your lips are like a crimson thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in courses. On it hang a thousand bucklers, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that feed among the lilies. Until the day breathes, so, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will hasten to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Senir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my bride. You have ravished my heart with a glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How sweet is your love, my sister, my bride. Did you get a sense for how he feels about her? Did you notice in verse 1, how beautiful you are, my love, how very beautiful. Do you see verse 7, you are altogether beautiful, my love, there is no flaw in you. Verse 9, you ravished my heart. And remember, this is a book that shows us something about God and his people. So hear those words spoken as if by God to his church. How beautiful you are, there is no flaw in you. You've ravished my heart. We read those as words spoken to the church, spoken to you, spoken 
to me. And I think a lot of the time we don't understand this. We just miss it. We don't get it. I, I, I think so often we talk about the love that he has for us and then we log it in our heads in a conceptual way. It's like, in theory, he loves us. Like there's an obligation on him. It's kind of a charity. It's a compromise on his part. Some kind of deal was done so we wouldn't get our sins punished and we get in and kind of, yeah, okay, yeah, he loves us. And we don't quite as often see him as the absolutely besotted groom, the one who's thrilled at his beloved, the one who delights as he sets eyes upon her. What would Jesus say to you if you're here today as a believer? He'd say, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. You've ravished my heart. We need to understand Jesus' beating heart for us. Jesus loves you. Not because it's compulsory. Not because he has to. He loves you because he absolutely adores you. He desires you. He rejoices in you. The prophet Zephaniah speaks of God rejoicing over you with gladness, exulting over you with loud singing. Do you think of God seeing you in that way? Now... I don't know how you're hearing this. I don't know what's kind of going on as you're hearing these words. I know um, some people might have a tendency, perhaps some days I might be one of them, to hear something like this and kind of just be, uh, I'm not sure, maybe this is just one of those self-esteem things based on nothing. Is this just a like, yeah, you go you, you're awesome kind of talk? Um, and we might be a little bit suspicious because... All that stuff I mentioned earlier, all the yes buts that we might put out there, it's not like those things are not true. It's not like kind of the sin patterns in our life or the stuff of the past. It's not like that doesn't exist. We all have sinned. That does mar the image of God upon us. And Scripture's clear. That's not trivial. That's not insignificant or meaningless. And yet, the heavenly bridegroom can and does say... There is no flaw in you. You're altogether beautiful, my love. So how does that work? Well, here's the answer, right? It's called the gospel. This is what the gospel does. It completely transforms the way we're seen by God. From those who are mired in all this sin and error that we've committed to one who we can say there's no flaw in you. You're absolutely beautiful. Again, Charlie Cleverly, uh, we looked at something he said last week, but again, he's helpful he says there are four reasons for this loving, positive assessment. First, the finished work of Christ. Second, the gift of the Holy Spirit, who moves our heart to be born from above and to become children of God. We cannot overestimate how beautiful this is to God. Third, the nature of God's personality, which is the Hesed covenant love of God for his people. And fourth, our destiny as his future bride. Let me just explain those four things, uh, just to really reinforce this teaching into our hearts. So number one, the finished work of Christ. What he's saying is Jesus went to the cross. He took all those yes buts, all those do not gaze upon me because. Every sin you've ever committed, everything you've done that's marred the image of God upon you, he's taken it upon himself. He went to the cross and he died in our place. He dealt with that and he gave us his perfect righteousness. So can God look upon you and say, there is no flaw in you? Absolutely, because all your flaws were taken by him and his perfect righteousness given to you. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What flaw could there possibly be now when it's all nailed to the cross with him? Second, he points out the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is the work that God does on the inside of us. He transforms us. He beautifies us. He changes us from the inside out. Now, this isn't the basis of why we're accepted by God. It's what he does because we've been accepted, because of that great exchange that Jesus gave us. And Jesus, as he's teaching, he uses the picture of a tree with fruit. So because the inside of the tree has been changed, because the spirit has taken up residence in you, new fruit will be produced. The way you live will be different. It will reflect the spirit in you. And we see in Galatians what this looks like. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of this, as we see it in ourselves and others, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in us and through us. And it creates this fruit that's so pleasing to God. It thrills God's heart. It's beautiful to him. Thirdly, he picks up the nature of God's personality and refers to what he calls a hesed love. Hesed is the Hebrew word for the kind of love that God has for his people. This is committed love. It's covenant love. It's love based on a promise. It's tender love. An analogy might be in the wedding vows that many people speak where uh, the words are spoken for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. No matter what happens, no matter what the circumstance, this love will stay strong for you because of the nature of the love. This is a love that melts away all of the insecurities. You don't negotiate point by point on the beauty of your spouse. You don't go through and be like, well, you're beautiful in this way, but like, not so much over here. You don't do that. That's not said love. And the love of God looks upon you and says you're all together beautiful. Maybe you even think of the phrase blinded by love. There are some circumstances being blinded by love is no bad thing because what it says is it doesn't hang on whether we have it together or not. It's his love that sees us this way. And then finally he points out our destiny as the bride, the church, the people of God together. Our destiny is that great day when Jesus returns it says in revelation 21 i saw the holy city the new jerusalem that's talking about us coming down out of heaven from god prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and then jesus is the groom it's the great wedding feast of christ and the church and this is how weddings go right the bride beautifies herself she spends uh, weeks and maybe months like picking the dress and choosing the makeup artist and the hair being done everything is there and so when she walks into the room you get this wow from the congregation and then you get this look in the eyes of the groom just absolutely taken with this bride And it all points to this day when the church comes out of heaven and you see this look in the eyes of Jesus. Wow, my beautified, glorified bride. It all points to this. And so the groom, Christ, can say to us, to you, to me, he can say, you are beautiful, my love. You have ravished my heart. I wonder if our musicians will just jump forward. My challenge for you this morning, the thing I want to just ask you and leave you with and lay on you this morning, 
is can you hear those words? As Jesus speaks this to you and over you, will you let those words sink in? It's kind of like he's singing the song back to you. You know, we love to praise God. We love to speak about how glorious he is, how much we love him, how our hearts are filled with him. And I wonder if we ever picture him singing it right back to us. I want to read a a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He was a a pastor in the 19th century. And he's reflecting on some of these words. And he's imagining Jesus speaking. And this is what he says. Just listen to these words. You have praised me. I will praise you. You think much of me. I think quite as much of you. You use great expressions for me. I will use just the same for you. You say my love is better than wine. So is yours to me. You say my word is sweeter than honey to your lips. So is yours to mine. All that you can say of me, I say it to you. I see myself in your eyes. I can see my own beauty in you. And whatever belongs to me belongs to you. Therefore, oh my love, I will sing back the song. You have sung it to your beloved, I will sing it to my beloved. You have sung it to your husband, I will sing it to my sister, my spouse. I I just had a sense that for some of us, some of what we've talked about today, this uh, how you see yourself, and this could be anything from the physical stuff we started with to the, uh, the sin stuff that we've reflected on as we've gone along, that you just can't see yourself the way he sees you. you just, your, your self-image is just uh, on the floor for whatever reason. I just had the sense as well that for some people, you feel a shame around that because you feel that's a struggle that uh, whatever point you're at in life shouldn't be for you. Maybe you feel like, well, I... Struggling with that might be something the teenagers go through or younger people than me go through. But where I'm at, I'm, I'm older, I've got a career, I've got all this stuff going on. I can't, I shouldn't struggle with that. And so there's even a shame around facing it. I did some teaching on Song of Songs with church leaders earlier this year and I raised a whole bunch of stuff and then just threw the question open, like, what's the big thing for you? And pretty much to a person, they said, it's this one. It's how I see myself. It's something that affects so many of us. 